Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the repulsive films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about the John Waters classic from 1972, Pink Flamingos, one of the most controversial films of all time and one of the films that set the tone and the standard for John Waters' career. This was one of the first midnight films and really set the pathway for the next couple of decades of such. Uh, With all that said, my name is Luke and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, today we're covering an iconic John Waters film that really needs no introduction. So let's just get right into it. If you'd like to follow along, then as of this broadcast, it is a travesty. Really, it is a travesty that 1972's Pink Flamingos is not available for streaming. However, with some creative searching, it can be found on archive.org in its entirety, along with a special debriefing with the director at the end where he shows off some deleted scenes. Uh, I believe this is a straight rip of the collector's edition DVD. And although... His publisher might not appreciate you viewing the film this way. Uh, I'd imagine that John Waters really wouldn't mind. I don't know if he would or not. But with that said, I highly encourage people to buy a physical copy of the film and and get some money to him. Um, I mean, he has plenty, but I really like the guy. Like, I've I've seen him in person a few times. I, I have all his films in multiple formats, like, I just, he's still alive. Give him some support. But with that said, I'm actually amazed that this movie is as accessible as it is. Like, I watched the DVD, and when the New Line logo comes up at the beginning with the, like, typical intro theme music you see on, you know, dozens and dozens of movies, especially in the 90s, I was like, this intro doesn't belong on this movie. Like we should be in a grindhouse theater on 72nd in New York in the seventies, like in an, a haze of weed and surrounded by people on LSD. That should be the environment in which this film is shown. Any other format just feels strange. Yeah, I I was not aware that New Line released this until the end of this film, where there's actually a trailer, the original theatrical trailer at the end. I'm wondering if New Line was going for something experimental here, releasing something like this. Um, I think they had an agreement with John Waters and probably published his catalog. Like, well, with the exception of a couple early films, which we might talk about, uh, I have a box set with from New Line with almost all his movies in it. And I think they were all released around the same time. It was the Pink Flamingo's 25th anniversary. Uh, so, but I, I do remember when this movie was hard to get, like, this was the first John Waters film I saw. And I, I mean, I was a teenager, but I really had to work to find a copy. And, and it was a bootleg copy. So it, it's much easier to, to find, but I'm not, 
I'm not absolutely shocked that New Line put it out. So this film is NC-17, and it would probably be rated NC-17 today if it came out. But are his other films rated the same way? I don't remember Female Trouble being this being NC-17. Uh, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I, I mean, even his most recent film that came out, and this is early 2000s now, but A Dirty Shame, that came out in C-17, and that was a cut version. You can get the uncut one on DVD, though. So, yeah, that was, aside from his, like, mid-period of mainstream stuff, like Hairspray, all the way up to Pecker, it, his films are pretty, pretty X-rated. Anyway, let's talk about the film itself. So... This wasn't John Waters' first movie. Uh, it was his third after Mondo Trasho and Multiple Maniacs. And speaking of hard to get, like Mondo Trasho, it, it was only briefly released on VHS before it was recalled. That's a pretty hard tape to get. And Multiple Maniacs, as far as I know, you can either get on VHS or an overpriced Criterion Collection DVD. Um, they were both cheaper than Pink Flamingos, and Pink Flamingos only cost $10,000 to make. Before that, he had made some short films, but first full-length feature was uh, Mondo Trasho. But with that said, why do you think this movie, like, like this was this was one of the most profitable independent movies of all time. Like, there was a return on its money of, like, a thousand percent. What do you think made this successful? So you're telling me this was only made on a 10K budget? Yes. So how much of that was the trailer getting burned down? <laughs> I don't know, but um, well, wait, I do know. So I, I'm sharing info right now out of a book I really like called Midnight Movies. It's by Haberman and Rosenbaum. I think it's an older book, but it just has a lot of really nice information. Um, but this says... Pink Flamingos cost about $10,000. And this is a quote from Waters, by the way. We had one light with an extension cord that ran a mile from the house to the trailer. The trailer cost $100. We got it in a junkyard. Vince Peranio painted it and redid it, bought the furniture in junk shops. We had to walk through mud for a mile to get up to where it was hidden on, his friend, on this friend of mine's farm. I edited the film in the attic of my house with the most pitiful tools imaginable. There was no work print. The easily scratched original was run through a projector every time I wanted to watch a cut. There were no A and B rolls to hide the splices. The extra sound was recorded directly onto a magnetic projector that sometimes worked. I spent many hours alone with that footage and I almost lost my mind. So to answer your question, a hundred bucks. Wow. I mean, it probably cost a lot more than that to renovate it unless he was really good friends with that guy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they found uh, stuff in junk stores, apparently. One of which by that's that's how he met Edith Massey, who plays um, the egg lady here. Uh, I mean, she had been they had been um, connected for longer, but she ran a thrift store in his neighborhood. And that's how he met her. So I have not seen any of his films before this. 
so you're gonna have to tell me did pink flamingos push a boundary compared to his earlier work no not really but it's more this is the first one that feels like a real movie the earlier ones just feel like collections of scenes which i mean this this almost is right like there's barely a story here but there is a story and it feels competently made i think this is just the first one he was able to get picked up and it was shown in multiple theaters um and you can the midnight movies book has a really good history of like which theater it played in and how it got to the next theater um but essentially the right people saw it and it just happened to make it into a theater in new york and jump from art house to art house and grind house to grind house this was one of those weird movies that was a hit with the art scene and with the grindhouse scene as we've seen with a lot of the advertising of these films uh, a lot of them gun uh, like especially on the back of the box gun for the, to try to make their films appear to be like the most shocking disturbing gratuitous whatever but um whereas where a lot of films are kind of like a puff on the back of the box this one delivers i i think there was probably a very real like marketing need for something like this when it came out because it was harder back then to be exposed to such um graphic and disturbing ideas i guess is the best way to put it they didn't have the internet back then like now nowadays you can search up like anything you want and in a search engine and it's going to pop up but back then you, you didn't really have that kind of ease of access i can see how something like this would be like a national phenomenon yeah i mean it definitely like i think it was mainly a new york and la phenomenon but eventually like word of mouth this is i think this is one of the i think the original like trinity of of midnight movies is this Eraserhead and El Topo and then and, and but there were there was a scene in New York before that right like filmmakers like um what's his name Kenneth Anger and um Richard Kern a little later like there was an underground scene but it didn't break big the way this did and I I've read quotes from Waters where he says some version of like I put the stuff in movies that you can't, you couldn't see anyplace else. Right. And so, yeah, it's probably right that it was like, it was a niche for people who were of a niche. But to speak to your earlier point, I think the majority of this budget, and I think I've heard water say this went to the, to the, the song rights. I only recognized one song from outside of this film. And I figured everything else was done in-house but uh i guess this is where you're gonna tell me they like licensed all of it yeah i mean i think there's a there's a lot of you know surf rock songs on here and 50s like rockabilly stuff um there's the amboy duke song i'm not a juvenile delinquent or is that amboy dukes well, I mean, I, you, you know my extent of unfamiliarity with this music because I was pretty pretty sure that this juvenile delinquent thing was for this film. Oh, no, no, no. That that was a... Okay, so it was originally by the Teenagers. Um, 
but the Amboy Dukes did cover it. Okay, that's the version I was thinking of. So yeah, that 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 song was a covered by a lot of like garage bands in the sixties. So I don't think they made any of the m- music for the movie. I think it's all licensed. What did you think of? So you this is this is the second or third film you've seen with Divine in it. I believe this is the. This is the third John Waters film I've seen. The second one with Divine. Okay. Um, so what did you think of her performance here as opposed to in Female Trouble? I prefer Female Trouble over Pink Flamingos, but not by a large margin. Both of these films are ex- exceptional viewing experiences that really need to be seen and not just and not just like uh you know there there are people who listen to podcasts about films but don't watch the films you can't do that here you cannot do this with with probably any john waters film but particularly with pink flamingos and female trouble there's just no there's just like this aura that radiates from these works that cannot be put into words yeah, I mean, hopefully most people who listen have seen Pink Flamingos at least, but I would certainly say in my film tastes, like the kind of thing that made me want to do a podcast like this, John Waters is the reigning influence. Like this is the guy that really formed my interest in trash movies. There's just some sort of simple, primal of offensive like vibe that has radiated from all three of the films I've seen and I'd imagine it probably extends to his entire catalog but Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble in uh, specific have really just hit something within like human biology that I'd imagine is offense so offensive that it probably jumps cultural boundaries because it's so direct it's so simple and direct but also um i i also feel these movies are way more complex than than he gives them credit for because i know we've had this discussion during female trouble where you know he says film critics overanalyze his shit and and i'm sure that does happen but there just seems to be something else here that i don't know if i'll be able to articulate it but there's something here that just has an effect on on viewers. Yeah, I think it's just the raw force of John Waters plus Divine. And the reason I asked about the performance of Divine is... All right, so to step back... Oh, yeah, back, I dodged that question, huh? Well, you'll have a chance to get back to it in a moment. I was just going to say, to step back, the story of this film, as there is such, is that... <laughs> um, divine is playing some version of herself known as the filthiest person alive and this other couple the the uh what is their name the i have um, no idea dude <laughs> i keep wanting to call them the dashers because david lockery <laughs> yeah um the marbles this other couple the marbles are trying to claim that title from her 
so neither it goes without saying that none of these people are like sympathetic or upstanding characters. Um, there is no one who uh, we can hopefully identify with or emulate. But for whatever reason, I'm still rooting for Divine. There's something about the character or the performance that makes me root for her as a protagonist. And it's the same in really all the films that Divine was in. Oh, I, I don't quite feel the same way. And I, I feel this, I, I, but I did feel similar during Female Trouble where, no, you can't sympathize with anybody. But I don't think I'm trying to when I watch something like this. It's more like watching um, like a horrible traffic accident, right? Like no matter how you feel about the drivers and what's going on the same thing is going to happen there is absolutely nothing you can do to affect what is about to be on the screen and you're just there to witness it you are here to witness uh, a catastrophe i think that's the perfect moment to play the trailer so let's do that and then we'll talk about the story I'd like to close with the original trailer New Line Cinema used to sell Pink Flamingos. Notice, no footage from the actual movie is ever shown. What did you happen to hear about it? From some friends who saw it and thought it was absolutely marvelous. Probably, I'll be very insulted. Rex Reed, Rex Reed told, <laughs> told us that it's uh, fabulous. Why would you come out at midnight to see it? Well, I go home at midnight. What are you going to see there? I guess there's just two kinds of people, Miss Sandstone, my kind of people, and Ashley. Fantastic. Third time I've been to it. It's an incredible head thing for people. Oh, it's marvelous. Absolutely. Most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my whole life. Not to be believed. Absolutely outrageous. It was divine. Fabulous. has got his finger on the pulse of America. I think he's got his thumb securely up America's ass. I enjoy dirty things as much as everyone else does, but this isn't even dirty. It's just disgusting. So let's start by going through the various characters and the and talk about the performances. So we've got, we already talked a little bit about Divine, but Divine's mother is played by Edith Massey. And uh, I don't know, how would you describe this character? Not integral to the plot at all. She is 
basically there to offend viewers. She's my favorite thing about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were saying you couldn't really like sympathize with anybody. I suppose she's the closest character to sympathize with, right? She's naive. As far as we know, innocent. She's just sort of being taken care of by the family. Yeah, so she she stays in like a, a playpen that's out in the living room and she's obsessed with eggs. And there's a there's a guy who brings eggs every day, like the milkman, the egg man. And she's always asking, like, when is the egg man coming? And please feed me some more eggs. <laughs> oh, it cracks me up. Um, uh, egg joke. So so what did you think of um, what do you think of Edith Massey? I mean, as an actress, she's wonderful. I don't know if she's actually playing a character or just kind of like herself across all of these various these various films but her character in this is not offensive in that um you know she is directly offending you it's more of like the condition of her life <laughs> and, and how her family is allowing her to live <laughs> that is kind of what like assaults your sensibilities like this is clearly someone that probably should be living in like a medical facility with you know uh extensive care and psychological treatment and then said this is what we get a grown a woman in a playpen eating eggs apparently when uh when andy warhol saw the film for the first time at like a party with john waters he pulled waters aside and asked him like edith massey like where did you find her because he just he thought there was something about her and there is i don't know what it is about her that makes her so interesting to me maybe just that there's been nobody ever who looked like her or spoke like her or acted like her and was in movies she is an utterly unique screen presence she probably busts every single archetype for an actress ever every single one <laughs> yeah so we also have um divine has a daughter cotton played by mary vivian pierce this, she's not a big presence in the movie no i mean the 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 cast in general is a little bloated compared to the like simple well maybe simple is not the right word the um like basic premise of the story. Like, I don't think it's really possible to give everybody enough screen time in like what hour, 20 minutes to really yeah. um, flesh everybody out. But did she need to be? No, but I, I do think like Mary Vivian Pierce plays Mrs. Dasher in female trouble and makes such a strong impression there and really does in the rest of John Waters movies that, it's it's odd to me that she's kind of muted here. Um, but yeah, maybe it's just because there's so many characters. The DVD that um, we watched and what you can find um, wandering around online is um, has deleted scenes at the end. 
and there was definitely stuff with her in it that was removed so that would have given her a bigger presence than the actual film but it's it wouldn't have so much have elevated her to like you know a grand individual character it would have just kind of um it, 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 she's kind of like a henchman right yeah yeah so she kind of had just had like this henchman status in the in the deleted scenes she was an executioner <laughs> or um like a, a hitman almost yeah and those got removed well her she has a brother crackers who is played by danny mills this was the only film he was ever in i've heard john waters say he really doesn't know what happened to him hmm. but he's not particularly memorable here he's okay he shows a willingness to like you know do whatever on screen which you kind of have to have for a John Waters movie. Well, I think there's one scene in specific that he will always be remembered for in this film. And I'm sure we'll get to that later. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple. So anyway, that's the that's the divine clan and they live in a a trailer out in the middle of a field surrounded by some woods because divine is hiding out after committing crimes and gaining the reputation as the filthiest person alive and she's going by the pseudonym babs johnson what what do you think of the names in this movie i mean is it really any different than like other john waters films well after this john waters develops this penchant for giving um using alliteration in his names so in female trouble for example you have donna dasher don davenport don don dasher like there that's how he eventually establishes his naming technique i guess in this film you just have kind of random words i guess they're kind of like pet names huh yeah you'd name your your dog crackers yeah but all right so they they're they're the reigning champions of the filthiest people alive contest and seeking to gain that title are the marbles raymond and connie marble so raymond is played by david lockery and connie is played by mink stall who might be my favorite john waters actress after edith massey but what do you think of this pair they i mean i know it wasn't like the exact same actress but they really did just remind me of the dashers um, i'm like i'm assuming there there is this like uptight rich couple archetype that sort of extends through his work like does this appear in things outside of female trouble and this movie he- not not exactly like this, and that's probably mainly because David Lockery died shortly after Female Trouble. Um, he died of AIDS. Uh, but there's always some heterosexual, straight-laced, upper-class, like, suburban character that's set up in opposition to whoever the main characters are. Well, in this one, they're not exactly as straight-laced. No, and that that sets this one apart a little bit, but they are 
they are notice. All right. So I have to give this explanation in order to make my point. They are, um, they kidnap female hitchhikers, chain them in their dilapidated basement and have their servant who lives with them uh, periodically rape the women in order to get them pregnant. And then they sell the babies to lesbian couples. And at one point, one of the women dies and they just leave her down there with the other one. Uh, But that is all to say that they like Raymond doesn't rape the women because that would be extramarital, right? They have to have their servant do it. And even when we see them being sexual, it's reduced to just like toe sucking and like, you know, rubbing over one another. We actually we don't actually see them have sex, I don't think. No, I guess not. But in in some ways, I think John Waters is trying to set them up as the conservatives. Granted, they are willing to exploit and take advantage of others, but they themselves have these uptight values. Well, I don't know if they necessarily have uptight values because they're still gunning for, you know, filthiest person of the world. Like it's some sort of uh, actual contest. It, really, it's just like made up in their minds. It's just a tabloid headline. Yeah. So to visualize them, David Lockery has like neon blue dyed hair, which supposedly he did with the magic markers. That's what he said anyway. Um, Mrs. Marble has like orangish red neon hair. And we see at one point that their pubic hair is dyed to match. Oh, I love you, Raymond. I love you more than anything in this whole world. I love you even more than my own filthiness. More than my hair color. Oh, God. I love you more than the sound of bones breaking. The sound of death rattle. Even, even more than my own shit do I love you, Raymond. And, and I, Connie, also love you more than anything that I could ever imagine. More than my hair color. More than the sound of, of babies crying, of dogs dying. Even more than the thought of original sin itself. I am yours, God, eternally united to you through an invisible cord of finely woven filth that even God himself could never, ever break. That's my favorite dialogue in the movie. It's really hard to pick a scene. <laughs> Just the phrase, I love you more than my hair color, is forever ingrained in the pantheon of quotes in my mind. Do you think that Waters might have had some kind of intention of like showing these characters off as just like uh, filthy posers as opposed to like act genuinely filthy people? Oh, yeah. I think that's the message. Yeah. Like, I think John Waters identifies with the divines of the world and they've always been truly subversive and truly underground. And then you've got people who are just trying to like adopt that style as a, as a style. Right. And uh, this movie was punk before punk was a thing. I forgot to mention that Mr. Marbles also has a habit of 
running around in the park and flashing people, but with a unique addition to the ensemble. <laughs> what did you think of these scenes? It, it's on brand. It's on brand for Waters. You know, it's not just flashing. It's the fact that he's... um. What was, what exactly was it that was uh, tied on to his penis? <laughs> it's a turkey neck. A turkey neck, yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I think this must have been far more subversive at the time than I, it strikes me now, but he is caught off guard when one of his flashing victims it just flashes her penis back at him. And uh, yeah, I can imagine that being really shocking at the time. That's a, it's a little simplifying the matter. So he shows up in the park and he finds a woman under a, like a pagoda, does his stick, reveals himself. And she sees him and just flashes him back like topless. And then he keeps going. He keeps trying to dial it up. And then this absolute legend decimates him by revealing her own penis. <laughs> and he is immediately repelled <laughs> off the attack. This is a completely different scene, but it just popped ahead. I want to mention it. When the marbles are kidnapping uh, this girl that was hitchhiking, um, to she replace asked him- the one that died in the basement from starvation and neglect. <laughs> right. Well, they say she died giving birth. Right. But anyway, she's asking them like where they got the car and they say at the car dealership. And then she's like, what, like, what's going on? Where are you taking me? And they say, we were just wondering where you're going to spread your VD today. It's just weird how they try to, um, you know, th- th- this is like the real difference between the marbles and divine, right? Like the divine clan are like the, elemental embodiment of filth whereas (laughs) on the other side you have the marbles who are believing themselves to be filthy yet somehow still trying to moralize others to like elevate their own like status or belief in themselves right they're trying to like up their ego we're better than you even though we're doing some really, really shady shit in our house, <laughs> selling babies <laughs> because you decide to sleep around extramaritally. Their servant doesn't like raping these women. So instead he starts using a turkey baster to impregnate them. The servant also dresses in Mrs marbles clothes and imitates her voice and recites lines he's heard her say what do you think was up with this character i don't know what they were gunning for here but we talked a lot about mr marbles and neglected the wife she is uh she's like a, a hashtag girl boss but also just really obnoxious she has a, her own little office that really feels like she just does a bunch of job interviews just to reject people. That's really what it felt like. <laughs> yeah, it does. Because <laughs> their only source of income seems to be selling basement babies. <laughs> but really, yeah. how, how much money would that get you, right? 
Like you're thinking maybe two kids every eight months. I'm assuming they wouldn't necessarily go to full term every time, but you're still going to sell them. <laughs> so 5K for eight months of investment. How do you even afford in this office, right? Yeah, it's questionable. Maybe they're maybe they were born to money. So maybe this guy was just kind of like disillusioned with like her like aura of power and 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 uh, like significance influence that he just wanted to emulate that. Well, no. Then again, he also put on a wig. What he put on like a mop wig and then <laughs> quoted the husband. Yeah, he's. The way he describes it is that he knows he's poor and that he doesn't have any power. And so this is his way of fantasizing, of pretending to be them. I mean, that's that's something we see nowadays. That's that's probably like a that's like a part of the human condition at this point. I mean, yeah. And I think it's actually really present and observant by john waters i mean now you've got you know like the whole rap video culture and um even like keeping up with the joneses and you, you know our our culture is filled with examples of poor people trying to look wealthy and uh that he just wants to pretend yeah you're right there's no difference between this and buying designer clothes you can't afford i guess one's cheaper yeah i suppose i mean a mop a mop top Yes, doesn't cost you much. But yeah, the the first baby we see them um, giving up for adoption is named Noodle. Oh, Lord. Uh, I really like that as a name, actually. Yeah, everyone has pet names. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I met a name, your ferret, man. If I met a person named Noodle, I would, I think that would be cool. When they go into the basement to pull out the first infant you know to establish the whole scheme for the audience yeah as the guy is taking the infant the surviving prisoner like fights back and they actually get into a legit slap fight while he's holding a real baby yep (laughs) well remember and uh i don't think you could film something like that anymore Remember in Desperate Living, there's a scene where they leave the baby in the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, but for how long, right? I don't know. And was it a real working fridge? Uh, well, we don't know. It could just The light could have just been on, right? Uh, but we do find out that the Dashers uh, take the money from selling these babies and they use it to finance heroin pushers and pornography shops. Oh, that's how they make their real money. It's an investment. Okay. Uh, right. So they <laughs> they exploit the youth of America to build up their, their money and then invest it in a bunch of shit that makes them more money in exchange for making everyone else miserable yeah yeah all right well they hire a girl named cookie to also a pet name to go out with babs johnson's son and get the whole scoop on the divine family find out where they're living what their schedule is like what events they're going to so that they can plan out their uh, dethroning of 
Devon is the filthiest person alive. And so Cookie goes to meet Crackers and she gets a little tour of the Divine trailer. She meets uh, Edie, the egg lady, and they have a conversation. And then Crackers takes her out back to his shed where he can show her the chickens. So I assume this is the scene that you refer to earlier. Yeah, but um, it's really not as violent as you would expect. Like, if you didn't know in advance that a chicken died in this scene, I don't think you would know. Oh, I certainly can tell. I mean, there's like blood smeared. Is there? Yeah, across Cracker's leg. Oh, hang on. Yeah, the if you watch it, you'll see the, the head actually like pop off. No way. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It, it doesn't it doesn't seem that graphic to me. I wonder but if I know were... a chicken did die a hundred percent. I wonder if yours was cut somehow. I don't think so. I remember the scene being very graphic with uh the he- the chicken's head like being broken off and blood getting smeared on Cracker's leg, but maybe I'm building this up in my in my memory. Didn't you in just watch this this morning? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm imagining it, but it's, I do still find this scene. I'm not going to say I find it disturbing, but I don't find it funny either. I just find it kind of awkward. I mean, if, if again, if you didn't know a chicken died here, this scene would not really be that remarkable, especially compared to all the other like fucked up shit that happens. But at least you know the chicken wasn't wasted. The cast ended up eat, killing and eating it. Well, I mean, it was already dead, but they, they cooked and ate it. Yeah, John Waters said that he thought that this the chicken had a better life. It got to be in a movie, and it got fucked, and it, they ate it. And it was going to get eaten anyway. Yeah. Um, they went to a farm and got it. So, no, I'm, I'm not, like, offended by the scene. I just find it awkward. Although John Waters said that the only film or the only scene in the movie he regretted filming wasn't this one. Did you did you read this? No. So he he said the only scene he regretted filming was the one where Crackers gives his mother a blowjob and <laughs> or the or his mother gives him a blowjob, right? Yeah. All right, the scene where Divine gives Crackers a blowjob because they were the two actors were friends in real life, and uh, Waters said that now they had to have that awkwardness between them. But they agreed to do it. Maybe they just didn't realize the ramifications that something like that can have on your friendship. Yeah, yeah, I do wonder about that because, like I said, I never saw. Danny Mills was never in anything else, whereas Divine went on to have a career. And my understanding is that Divine was very much a creative partner to John Waters. So I am like, he might have been cool with it. And the other guy wasn't really fully comfortable. But the blowjob is simulated, right? No. It's not because they don't show it. Your version was cut. No way. It had to have been because they, they, I mean, they don't show the ejaculation, but they show 
the dick going in and out of Divine's mouth repeatedly. My version had a gaping anus, and you're telling me they cut out <laughs> a chicken death and a blowjob? All right, everyone, stand by. We're going to figure this out. In the course of this recording, we discovered that the version of the film that I watched was slightly edited. It turns out the chicken scene in the version you can find online um, is shortened to about six seconds and you can't tell the chicken was killed at all. And then we found out that a later scene in the film that involves a full frontal gratuitous blowjob is also cut out uh, the the scene is intact, except the framing is from pubic bone up on the person receiving. So if you do try to watch this via the internet, that is something you should know you're missing out on. Animal death and hardcore pornography. Earlier, we were talking about the rating for this film and like the NC-17 or X rating as it was then is, is definitely deserved. Oh, I never thought it wasn't deserved. I mean, yeah. even the stuff that was left in this film for the, I guess, quote, edited version is still pretty out there. I mean, I didn't realize mine was edited because there's gaping assholes and uh, shit eating, right? Like, if that's in your film, what are you taking out? <laughs> apparently, it's animal death <laughs> and hardcore porn. So once... The da oh, I was almost going to call them the dashers again. Once the marbles find out where Divine is, they mail her a package addressed to Babs Johnson, a trailer. And uh, upon opening it, oh my god, oh man, you someone has sent me a bell movement. Oh, a turd, mama, a turd. Who could have sent this? Ah, a turd. So that was Divine's turd, and uh, <laughs> oh. but I especially like the note that comes with it because it says, "You're no longer the filthiest person alive. We are signed the filthiest people alive." This act is the equivalent of hitting a hornet's nest with a stick. And this hornet's nest is covered in drag makeup. Yep. I especially, though, like 
divine's revenge <laughs> for the bowel movement. Um, divine and crackers go over to the marble's house and uh, lick everything, everything in the house. <laughs> And like drool and spit on the table. I have a really bad gag reflex when it comes to tasting like um, not food surfaces. So like popsicle sticks and like paper in particular. And although I didn't gag, the scene did kind of trigger me a little when they were looking like empty plates and tablecloths. And they run their entire tongue like up and down the stairwell banister. <laughs> oh. And the things they say about the different rooms, I really like. When they're in the bedroom, Divine says, this is where they touched their uninspired little organs together, vainly trying to recharge their filthiness. <laughs> and in the kitchen, she says... This is where they gobble fruits and vegetables, all in the name of health. And then they make their way to the couch. And after licking the whole couch, which I found <laughs> I found quite um, disgusting uh, in particular, that's when we get the aforementioned blowjob scene. Yes. Uh, if that wasn't enough, they just decide to go full on incest. And, uh, and the dialogue leads us to believe that they have done so before. So I'm not saying this this movie is tame by any means, but I really felt like there was a halfway point where the film just sort of spirals into like a swirling toilet flush of depravity. And it starts with the wedding for Evie and the Eggman. <laughs> yeah. Where... I would say like up to this point, the film has been like, a, I, I hate to say the word casual, but like casual John Waters fair. Like, okay, you know, this is offensive. It's up there. It's stylish, you know, whatever. And then the marbles realize there's a wedding going on and it's very, very gratuitous. Like there's a female stripper and a male stripper and this dude gapes his anus for the camera for like a good almost like minute and a half of him just like flexing like every muscle and tendon imaginable to make all sorts of shapes and <laughs> positions so this guy was the one actor in a John Waters movie that um, preferred to not be identified and John Waters never said his name until I think it was 2010 he passed away and John Waters revealed who it was hmm. but I don't remember his name but apparently he used to he used to go to theaters and sit behind people and when that scene came on he'd lean forward and say like that's my asshole up there <laughs> Oh, there's beautiful people in this world. So yeah, and at the culmination of this wedding, the 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 Eggman uh, wheels Edie away in a wheelbarrow. A very with the great difficulty, I might add. 
she's a very big woman in this movie. And then we never see her again. That's it. No, she's off to married bliss. So then the cops show up and uh, Divine uses what I'm assuming was a birthday or a, a wedding present. Yeah, it was a present. Because this is also it's, Divine's birthday. It's also Divine's birthday. Yeah. Uh, it was a meat cleaver, but with an extended handle on it. I don't know where you get something like this. If this is a specialized butchery tool or what, but it looks like something from an RPG that like an evil character would use. She comes out with this cleaver and together with the family, the whole clan, they just chop all of the police to pieces and eat them. Yeah. <laughs> Up until this moment in the movie, I was thinking like, and maybe this is what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I was thinking that, you know, Divine's side of the movie, they've been offensive and grotesque and all of that, but they haven't really done anything evil or like that's really criminal. And then this scene happens and you're like, oh, <laughs> everybody this. in the movie is uh, is pretty, pretty criminal at this point. I think part of it, too, is that up to this point, everything the Divine Clan has done is kind of believable. Like, you could see actual people doing this. But then after after this, it's absolute bedlam. <laughs> and this is when a, a lot of the other weird things in this film that, that are really far out there start just, uh, like, snowballing, right? Like... The, the dude getting out exhibition happens after this. All the furniture licking, incestor and burglary. And it's eventually followed up with felony arson. Although, I guess that's kind of like normal for a Waters film. And uh, yeah, and, and then everything else we're, we're going to probably talk about. Well, it just gets more extreme from this point. Yeah, but there's also just like really good gags that it aren't necessarily extreme, but they just really get me. Like when the when the marbles go home after Divine and Crackers have licked everything, uh, Mr. Marble sits on the couch and the cushion knocks him on the floor. And uh, Mrs. Marbles is like, the couch rejected you. It's never done that before. And uh, and they're like, something is wrong. Something's wrong with the house. She sits on a, a chair and the chair rejects her. And this and then we see that the the pregnant girls have escaped um, because Divine released them and they castrated uh, Channing, the guy, the servant. And um, and we see Mrs. Marbles look down and say, he's been castrated. His penis is gone. This whole scene is wild, like. Everything from here on out in the movie is screamed, like every line of dialogue, because everything's just in hysterics. I like to think that the house, the feng shui turned against them because the furniture finally experienced real filth and is now just so disgusted at these posers that it doesn't want them in its home anymore. I really like that interpretation. <laughs> well, in revenge they burned down Divine's trailer. And this is where 
I guess the the culmination of violent revenge reaches its peak because Divine and her clan retaliate by kidnapping the marbles and putting them on trial with the news media present. You know, we, we should not gloss over the fact that they really set fire to this trailer. They they gossied it up, apparently bought it for a hundred dollars. Made it into a movie set, put all the furniture in there, and then just lit the whole thing up. You just don't see that kind of dedication. I don't know. In 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 Phantasm, they blow up a couple cars. Yeah, but Phantasm's budget was a little bit more than 10k. Uh, I think it was pretty equivalent. And then remember, you have uh, was it in the thing? They actually built like their own little Arctic base film set. Yeah. That they set on fire for the end of the film. But you know, they had money. But they had money. Yeah. No, John Waters and, and this crew, they're truly like maybe anarchist is too strong of a word, but they're totally willing to, to burn some things down for the sake of their, their art. Oh, um, yeah, for sure he's anti-establishment. <laughs> like, no no question there. Oh, I think there's a difference between being anti-establishment and anarchist. Like, there's some degrees in there. I don't know where the line is. So but it, there, There is a spectrum, but yeah. That's a conversation for another time. During this scene, Divine is wearing the really iconic red mermaid dress and the really crazy eye makeup that you see on the cover and in the posters and the news media are asking her questions. Give me more questions. Divine, are you a lesbian? Yes, I have done everything. Does blood turn you on? It does more than turn me on, Mr. Vader. It makes me come. And more than the sight of it, I love the taste of it. The taste of hot, freshly killed blood. Could you give us some of your political beliefs? Kill everyone now. Condone first-degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. <laughs> it was so hard not to laugh during that. So, so that is that is the communication between dot divine and the in the world. That is their message for us. <laughs> advocate cannibalism advocate <laughs> condone first degree murder and then they tar and feather the marbles and uh divine says you stand convicted of assholism and then shoots him but remember this isn't murder because they're putting up the appearance at least the appearance of a court system so they're doing <laughs> right. this within the bounds of their law. Yeah, the witnesses are Divine's children. What did you think of this scene overall? I think this is about the most appropriate way the story could end. You know, we were saying, you were saying in the beginning, you know, like a quarter way through the film, you're wondering, is Divine like actually the filthiest person alive? And then by the end of this, you're like, okay, yes. Because uh, she's like a total sociopathic murderer on top of all the deplorable shit she's been doing the whole film. And somehow has managed to top two people 
who have been basically engaging in like the human slave trade for God knows how long, <laughs> drug pushing, etc. Uh-huh. Well, this isn't quite the end because Divine and her children move to Boise, Idaho, and we see her walking down the street in front of the news cameras and eats the dog shit. This is the famous dog shit scene that probably drove curious people to the theaters in the 70s. Why do you think this was tacked on at the end? My understanding is that this, the idea for this scene predated this movie, that John Waters and Divine had been talking about it for like a couple of years, how this would be the ultimate disgust shock moment to put in a movie. And it was like word of mouth. People were like, you can't believe what happened in this at the end of this movie that I saw last night. And then five more people go to see it. And it's just a, it's its own marketing strategy, but it's real. The, the, apparently they followed the dog around for like two hours and it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't shedding. So they gave it an enema, a dog enema. Imagine Going to a theater to see a film because you heard somebody eats a actual dog turd in it. Oh, well, that was always like before I saw this movie, that's what I always heard about it. It was always like the, the movie where, you know, the 300 pound drag queen eats dog shit. I don't know. It, it's certainly intriguing, but I think it's kind of effective to have like one last gross out like up the ante a little bit before the credit sequence like if you weren't already disgusted by the miscarriage of justice that just transpired like well then we're just gonna hit you in the stomach yeah exactly all right yeah one last like subversive punk act to throw in the film i mean you never know if you're gonna get to make another film right so if you have an idea, you got to put it out there. I mean, props to Divine for going all the way. Manages yeah. to somehow not wretch everything up during this scene. Apparently, uh, well, John Waters told him, like, if you throw up, it's good. Like, don't be afraid to. Um, because it would just make the, the scene more disgusting. Um, he used to say that, you know, if an audience member were to, puke during one of his movies it would be like a standing ovation <laughs> so he's definitely out to to disgust um but yeah apparently divine called the poison control center or the hospital or something the next day and asked if there's anything really bad that could happen they waited to to find out <laughs> i guess he just started worrying about it like after the fact Feel like you should have worried about that beforehand like i don't know maybe check the dog for worms oh well that's what they told him that uh the worst that could happen is you'd get worms but all right i think that's a perfect moment to um give final thoughts and ratings because this film was released before female trouble i was expecting it to be not as extreme not as offensive and um perhaps it isn't on a cerebral level, but it certainly makes 
up for that by really being grotesque throughout most of the film, physically grotesque, even in a generation with constant internet accessibility to fucked up stuff, there is still something about this film that is timeless. It is the, the grossness is timeless here. You will be affected no matter what generation you're from. Um, maybe even turned on. But offensive material isn't the only thing this movie has going for it. Um, just like Female Trouble, the dialogue is fucking on point. The characters, even if they're not as fleshed out as they could be, are still pretty memorable. Um, you know, we were talking in the beginning about how the daughter was um, not playing a very significant role, but you know, I'm still going to remember all the things she was saying, how she was talking about happiness <laughs> during the, 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 the show trial uh, news bulletin. News bulletin? Like the, the, okay, the pre-trial news interview. This film is just an easy four stars. It's, it's easy to see how this was a cultural phenomenon at the time. And I've definitely heard the name of this film thrown around every now and then, even if it isn't readily accessible. But um, af after we discovered that I watched an edited version, slightly edited, I should say, uh, I can see why this isn't necessarily available on streaming because I'm pretty sure Amazon would have, has like a no... Well, I think a lot of streaming services have a no hardcore pornographic policy and animal cruelty probably fits somewhere in those same criteria of things they just won't show. And although it's regrettable, a chicken did die. It at least was uh, at least was not wasted. It was still used for food by the cast. They didn't have catering for this film set, except for probably this chicken and all the eggs that Evie could eat. I think I agree with John Waters that it, they made the chicken's life better. At least it got to be in a movie. How many chickens get a legacy? We're still talking about this chicken 50 years after its death. I see this movie as a little bit of a, like early incarnation of a lot of ideas and features that John Waters would perfect um, but weren't perfect yet. I kind of see his his feature length film evolution as the, just that an evolution. Where like in Mondo Trasho and Multiple Maniacs, it's he's really just throwing a bunch of scenes and ideas together without a real story. And this one, there's a little bit more of a story, but there's still like it doesn't seem like he really knows how to direct the thing yet or really write a script. And then in female trouble, everything is perfected. And then for me, like the sequence of female trouble and desperate living and to a lesser degree, the films that came after like are just untouchable to me. But anyway, so pink flamingos is like the baby version of all of that to me. It's not perfect. It's pretty rough around the edges, but 
there are so many ideas and lines of dialogue and images here that are just like fascinating and offensive and disgusting and hilarious and classic and memorable. Like you, you just don't forget this stuff. And this movie certainly has a, you know, had a cultural impact and helped form and influence a long line of midnight movie makers afterwards. I think I'm going to give it three and a half. If female trouble is the four, then this is the three and a half. But with that said, I want to read this um, Roger Ebert in his original review. After the review, he wrote this note. I'm not giving a star rating to pink flamingos because stars simply seem not to apply. It should be considered not as a film, but as a fact or perhaps as an object. (laughs) So to some extent, I agree. I don't, I don't know really how like stars work for this movie. Um, But it is a classic example of, early punk, countercultural, um, queer, uh, transgressive cinema. And I think it did a lot of important things, um, even if a chicken had to die to accomplish it. The stars are just all about how much the movie can affect a viewer and the importance, the gravity of that effect. Well, uh, a part of it for me is like, I guess this isn't true across the board, but like if I were going to sit down and watch a John Waters movie tomorrow, Pink Flamingos would fall somewhere in the middle. Like it wouldn't be the first one I went to, but I do very much enjoy it. And I don't think I'll ever get tired of it. Like it will always be shocking and watchable. All I'm saying is much like Female Trouble, this movie is going to stick with me for a while. All right, next week, we are going to cover another midnight movie classic uh, directed by another standard bearer of exploitation cinema, Jack Hill. And the movie is 1975's Switchblade Sisters. Um, uh, My understanding is a favorite film of John Waters, uh, a favorite film of Quentin Tarantino. And I'm, I'm a huge fan. This is another movie that I, I don't think ever gets old. Are you familiar with this one? No, I'm not. Jack Hill did a, uh, a horror movie I really like called Spider Baby. And he did my favorite black exploitation movie ever, Coffee. But this is his ode to girl gangs of the 60s. High school girl gangs the kind that deal in prostitutes and heroin. So I'm, I'm really pumped to talk about it. I, I think Leland's going to love it. I hope he loves it. Uh, I think it'll, it'll be a really fun conversation. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. Uh, any last words, Leland? Thank you for your continued support. We will talk to you next week about Switchblade Sisters.